The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and Finance Presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, Contributor at Eureka Report, Founder of Crikey, Shareholder, Activist and City of Manningham Councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And uh, we're in another only. new cafe this week. Oh, well, we're in the second time in Le Clec. Um, anyway, uh, I understand, Stephen, you have a new best friend. Um in one Jay Packer. Do we call him, do his friends call him Jimmy or Jimmy Paco? Jimmy or James? Or, well, he signed off as James. So, yes, I was just minding my own business on, uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday morning, and ping, this, this text message comes in from the $250 million gin palace, which I think was travelling from the Italian coast to Ibiza near Spain. It's Ibiza. I, Ibiza. And um, anyway, so I'd, I just, I'd had one meeting with him in 2014 at Crown for an hour, which was pretty interesting. And then, you know, this, this message comes in. Hi, Stephen. James Packer here. I actually think you're okay. And he, he was responding to an article I've written in Crikey about Peter Costello receiving 300000 from James Packer for gambling lobbying. And Peter Costello saying, no, 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 it was for financial advice. So... So that was the reason for the correspondence. So he's, he's joined the vast crowd of people who think you're okay. Well, yeah, he's okay. And then he says, I read your latest article in Crikey and it's not bad. You never give me or Crown credit for investing billions in Melbourne, Perth, Sydney on the basis of having rock-solid contracts with state governments, deals that the state governments then proceeded to renege on. Anyway, I'm looking forward. Also, I have no one doing my PR, as opposed to armies of people or whatever you said about me. Also, I believe what's happening to Julian Assange is a disgrace. I'm not publicly supporting him to help my reputation. It's probably unpopular to support Assange. I've always loved politics. I told you that in 2014 when we met in my office at Crown. Let me know if you want to continue a conversation. James Packer. And did you let him know you want to continue the conversation? Well, I, I thought about it. I asked my wife. I said, oh, what do I do? And she said, well, look, you're both 50-something. You're both a bit mad. So why don't you just send him something back and ask if we can have a holiday on the boat? So anyway, I, I imagine I, your wife said something like, you're both completely mad. Completely mad, yes, that's right. So anyway, so look, we went back and forth and we had quite a – I probably had 10 or so back and forth all, all day. So um, and I wrote another little piece on Crikey. I sent that to him and radio silence since. So I think perhaps he didn't like this follow-up piece and, and, and I'm <laughs> back, in, back in the sin bin. But uh, that was a little bit of – But was this in the context of uh, Lachlan Murdoch's – uh, no lawsuit no. against Crikey. No, no, to- to- totally separate. So the the, the Lachlan uh, lawsuit happened after this exchange with James. And are they still mates, James and? Yeah, Lachlan? yeah, besties, absolutely. They are besties. They are they? absolute besties. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I've had a strange week. I've got Lachlan Murdoch suing my old Crikey uh, in the federal court. Forty page writ. You know, well, publicity all you. over the world. He, he launched the writ against you last year, didn't he? Lachlan. Well, yeah. well, this is this is a funny thing. So I wrote a piece in Crikey saying that he basically 
Well, I went too far in criticising his performance at Channel 10. That's just, like let's you, just put Stephen. it that way. I went, that's I did, that I, is just, that's I, very surprising. I did go too far. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so the lawyers let a, the emails come in complaining about it. And then what comes through is they actually, they actually prepared the statement of claim and said, if you don't apologise and give us money, we're going to lodge this. So what I've got in front of me is the eight-page statement of claim, never filed though. Just, just because you caved, we caved. We gave him ten grand. We paid four thousand for his legals, and you I groveled. Worked, I worked for free for a while. We groveled, <laughs> and so he then thought, "Well, this is easy. You just, you just uh, sit, get the lawyer to." So he's got some lawyer on retainer in Sydney, as sort of a sole practitioner, and his brief is just to harass Crikey. It seems. Except so that, that our friend Eric Beecher, who owns Crikey, has kind of. Uh, said, bugger you, you could yeah. sue us, well, see you in the, court. Well, this is the thing. He kept sending similar threatening emails over stuff that wasn't defamatory. So he just thought he could just keep doing it on any time he got mentioned almost. Yeah. So I wrote, I said he shouldn't have claimed 10 million of JobKeeper. And we got the same one, same allegations as if when I said that he deliberately sent Channel 10 break, which of course he hadn't done. So anyway, so he, and we got told us to go and take a running jump with that one. And then this one's happened and he's done it again. And finally, Crikey's going, well, look, we're sick of this. Sue us. And I wonder whether that was to some extent uh, influenced by the Ben Robert Smith uh, trial, which has not gone that well for yes. for Ben. Yes. Well, I, and, and I mean... maybe the Crikey's thinking, oh, that'll be okay. That'll be the same for us. You beauty. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that the... Uh, I, I mean, I'm not part of the Crikey in the Sanctum. I, I was surprised that anyone when I saw the, the, the nuclear bomb uh, dropped at five o'clock on Monday, but uh, when they went public with their special edition and they're t- revealing yeah. all the correspondence... And taking out an ad in the New York, in New York Times. Times. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so very bold. And they've had publicity all over the world. Vanity Fair, the BBC, all over the world except in any Murdoch-controlled publication <laughs> where they, they've gone all Kremlin, North Korean and... Uh, this never happened. It it's doesn't not news. exist. It, it doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. There is no forty-page statement of claim from our chairman in the Federal Court of Australia, and and um, yeah. So look, I think um, I think it's a PR disaster for, for for Lachlan. I don't know why he's doing it. It's just it's the biggest event in Crikey's history. Crikey's a media gnat. Lachlan is a is the incoming leader of the world's most powerful family. Why is he dignifying a gnat like that? Just, I think he's got a big ego and a glass jaw, but I don't know. I shouldn't say that probably because I might get joined. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How, you dare, how dare you say I've got a glass jaw? Yes, exactly. I'll sue I'll, you. I'll sue you for saying I've got a glass jaw. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, you want to... So, well, my, my new best friend is um, uh, Dr Lowe, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, because I had lunch with him on Monday. You had lunch with the Governor? I did. Well, how, how do you get an invite to that? Uh, w- uh, well, it was an ABC um, colleague's lunch we went we were invited up to the sanctum of the i can't remember what floor it was anyway it was martin place in martin place sydney in so sydney. You, you had to fly up for it i flew up for it hope oh, you see paid your paid your fare for that so. well no because it's it's hard to determine which of my hats various oh, hats. so you so you subsidized auntie and paid for your own flights i paid my flight because see the you know, because it's not just an abc for me it's true. not just abc it's new daily and the Rica report yeah true so um uh, yeah. That's fair enough. And I'm guessing it was probably uh, the old Chatham House, was it? Absolutely Chatham House. So, so you I can't, can't talk about what he said, but you can talk about what you told him under the Chatham House rule. I can. So what did you tell him, Governor? <laughs> well, I told him that I thought he never needed to say 2024. In the communications, as we know, for the, virtually all of 2021 and the last meeting of 2020, 
they said that they didn't expect to need to increase interest rates from 0.1% um, until 2024. They didn't expect that. So it wasn't a promise. Um, and he was kind of saying... Uh, uh, be careful. He's always, he has said before yes, yes. that 2024 <laughs> was never a promise. It was a conditional, you know, that's what they expect situation. I said, well, what I told him is I don't think you needed to say 2024 at all. You yes. didn't need to use the year. You could have just kept it vague. I totally because, agree. Um, you know, that kind of puts a number on it. That's, mm. You know, that's much more firm. And also, I told him that I thought they kept this stuff going way too long. I hope you also told him that he shouldn't have lent $188 billion to the big five banks on a three-year term at 0.1% fixed. Look, I didn't say that. Um, and I should have channeled you and, and, and done that. Mm. I should have definitely. Yes. Oh, well... Um, so uh, that's an interesting approach that he's duchessing the media. I wonder if he's doing the rounds of... Uh... Oh, he does lots of rounds. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he talks to he talks to business people, economists, mm. all the time. Mm. So, he, look, he's a very plugged in... Mm-hmm. Can I ask one thing? Was, was there a selling component? Did you feel you were being pitched? No. No, it was just a, a regular engagement. No, definitely not. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was a pleasant lunch. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd written a column couple of weeks ago saying that the Reserve Bank is a renovator's delight. <laughs> <laughs> and I half expected him to have that column out on front, in front of him and go through it line by line and point out to me where I'd got it wrong, but he didn't even mention it. So that was, you know, that was polite. Yeah. Well, thought, it's, the, it's, it's the true art of tabloid journalism, Alan, <laughs> is when you do someone over on the front page and they ring you up in the morning and thank you. <laughs> that, as the Murdoch uh, protection racket types say, Andy Coulson said that, the old editor of The Sun, that the idea is you've got to do them over on the front page and then you're so scary and powerful that they ring you up and thank you for it. <laughs> yes, well, he didn't do that either. So, no. No. But, uh, I did say in that piece that um, he needs to be replaced by an outside appointment. Yes. For the first time first in the year, Reserve, Reserve yes. Bank's history. Yes. Um, and that um, Michelle Bullock, who was at lunch, and, mm. and, and I'd net, not met Michelle before. She's a very nice person. She's mm. the current deputy. So the, success, the the history has been that they virtually always, almost always, appoint the deputy as the next mm. governor. Mm. Well, you know how um, ScoMo handpicked Ita to be the ABC chair, and she's now 80. If they offered it to you, would you accept it? If uh, Albo rang up and said, I'd like you to be, we need an outsider who's credible, would you come in and be the next uh, Governor of the Reserve Bank because you seem to know a lot more about how to set interest rates than the current bloke? Would you accept that role? Absolutely not. No. Really? Gee, you haven't got an ego at all, have you? You're a very humble man. I certainly wouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Because you'd be a very good Governor, great communicator. No, no, no. Being Governor, if I became Governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, the, the main thing I would learn is more humility. I mean, honestly. <laughs> you think you need to be more humble, but you, you're so humble you wouldn't accept that role. I think that makes you very humble. Oh, whatever you think. I was, at, uh, I was actually at Andy Penn's farewell last night oh, talking about humble. You get all the invites. Now, Andy Penn, the Telstra CEO, uh, he's got the firmest CEO. handshake of any CEO I've ever met. Did you, did you, oh, he drew blood on me when he shook my hand. Did he yeah. just? Anyway, what was it like? Well, it was a, there was not that many people there, about 50 people there, some nice, oh, nice speech. Nice speech from um, John Mullins, the chairman. 
do, um, I do like John Mullins. He's an excellent chair. He is, and but I, and I do like Andrew Penn. I mean, he's good too. I he's so. I mean, as. Uh, I spent most of the night talking to Gil McLaughlin, the uh, CEO of the AFL, about the he's got an ama- about the bombers and what the hell's he's, going on there. He's got an amazing presence, hasn't he? Gil? Well, he's so tall. He's so tall, a, but he's just got something about him. He's about he's about eight foot. Yeah, I mean, he's, honestly, he's my height. I look him in the eye, but there's something about him. He's got amazing charisma. So, and he just is loved by a lot of people who deal with him. He's got something about him. He does. Mm. Yeah, no, so we, we had a good talk. And anyway, um, as I said to him, that uh, Andy Penn is one of the humblest CEOs I've ever met. I mean, yeah. the thing – and it's, it's what makes him a good leader. Yeah. Because, you know, he's not arrogant. You know, uh, and to be a good leader, I think you have to be yeah. uh, able to be a good sort of follower or at least yeah. – to, to be humble. And, and he took, on a, he like took on a no-win job there. I mean, Telstra was NBN, it was massive trouble. cost cuts, you know. So it, whatever, whoever had that role, it was just going to be grinding. And he's done a good job, he though. Has done, I, I, I like him. I think he, I think he deserves credit. So, so I, met, uh, I met his successor, Vicky Brady. And she, um, I hadn't met her before. She mm. seems impressive. It's good to see there's a burst of new female CEOs. There's a new female CEO of the ASX as well as Telstra. So we had a bit of a... Drought there for 18 months or so, where very few, and all of a sudden it's kicked over again, which is good. So, and I, yeah, I do think the next governor of the Reserve Bank will be a female. Correct. Um, I was saying that you know Michelle Bullock is the right gender mm. as the deputy, mm. and probably the reason that Guy DeBell quit as Correct. deputy governor yeah. and went to work for Andrew we, Forrest yes. uh, is because he might have been told, I don't know this at all, of mm. course, but he might have been told the next governor's going to be female. So, mm. you know, uh, there you are. But, um, okay, all right, well, let's... Um, do you want to say something about the summit next week, do you? What do you reckon's oh, going to happen with well, the big talk fest, Albo's talk fest, jobs and skills? Yeah, so look, uh, the, the um, issues paper that was put out by Chalmers, written by Treasury the other day, full of motherhood. So I don't think mm. there's, you know, that's kind of all, everyone's going to furiously agree about everything on that. But what it comes down to, I think, is going to be a negotiation about two things. One is collective bargaining, yeah. which the unions want, business doesn't want. Yeah. Um, that is to say, be- uh, bargaining beyond the enterprise level. So mm. enterprise bargaining, everyone seems to agree, the academics all, all agree it doesn't work anymore mm. because there aren't enough people in large enterprises. Everyone's in small businesses now. Mm. Um, and so the workforce has, workforce has changed. People aren't in unions. Enterprise bargaining doesn't work anymore. The unions want to go back to uh, industry-wide bargaining, the ability to have strikes in order to get real wages up. Obviously, the the businesses businesses attending the summit are going to argue vociferously against that mm. uh, and so that's going to have to be decided on that isn't really mm. I don't think there's any, going to be any kind of consensus about that mm. there's uh, so the government's going to have to make a decision as to how it changes the workplace rules the other thing that will be negotiated I think is migration yeah I think that for me that's actually the bigger one is at the end of the day the unions like to put a premium price on labour by controlling supply. And that means, that explains the long-term Labor Party hesitancy around open doors migration. It, it is trying to influence the market for labour and we have the highest minimum but high wage. Level, but a high level of migration is one of the reasons that wages have been so, wages growth has been so low. Correct, yeah. And so so, so Labor's so instinct is, is always a- to, to maximise the 
the, the market price of the incumbents. It's like being members of the pharmacy guild or, you know, you're a, if you can choke off your competitors in supply, you can charge a higher price yourself. But now there's a crisis of skills and supply. So how far will the Labor government go with business clamouring for, for bring in cheap from, skilled labour? Right. So there's going to be the, – the, the, there's an argument about that. The yeah. unions don't want more migration. Yeah. Business yeah. wants more, more migration. They're going to have yeah. to – But you don't, but need, the trouble a, is, you I don't, don't need a summit for that. You just need a, need a meeting. So, well, that's right. But of uh, course, they ne- but they have to have a summit. Yes, yeah. He's very hawkist, isn't he? So he's he's got the he wants to be a hawk. So tax summits, which is fine. I mean, he's a good consulter, Albo. So this is a, just a consult consultation exercise, really. Now, just before we do questions, I just wanted to um, do a quick shout out on on a couple of capital raising issues. So the ANZ three point five billion dollar. Patrio, which means basically means uh, renounceable rights trading, was a magnificent outcome for retail shareholders with $4.10 in compensation paid to more than 300,000 shareholders who didn't participate in the $1.8 billion retail offer. 217,000 did participate, but those who didn't were compensated $4.10 each and that was more than the $2.75 in compensation that the non-participating institutional investors got in the earlier institutional offer. So always like it when retail gets more than instos because our capital raising system, it's always the little guys getting done over by the big end of town. And to contrast this excellent ANZ outcome, how about clean away? You know, rubbish company, rubbish capital raising, $300 million placement at $2.50, and then a $50 million share purchase plan only for retail. That's only 12.5% of the capital raising set aside for retail. And there's no VWAP discount. So normally with a good share purchase Volume plan... Volume-weighted average price yeah, they say, discount. They say, we'll offer you a chance to buy $30,000 worth of shares at the institutional price or the VWAP price, the last five days of trading up to the close of the offer, minus 5% or minus 2% or something to sort of give you encouragement to participate. So CleanAway have said no discount to VWAP, but just a VWAP adjustment. Orica, which did a, is also doing a, an SPP at the moment, is offering a 2% discount, which will kick in because the price is trading below the $16 placement price. And Steadfast, the insurance broker, did a $225 million placement and then they followed up with a $25 million share purchase plan. Again, only 10% of the capital raising set aside for retail, and they've only offered a skinny 1% discount to VWAP. So the message to companies out there is go with pro rata with rights trading like ANZ did. And if you have to do a placement share purchase plan, don't cap the SPP and if and, and let the VWAP pricing be VWAP minus 2% or 5% because whenever they do a placement, they price it at a 10% discount for the instos. So why shouldn't they come in with a market discount for poor, long-suffering retail? Here ends the lesson. That was exciting, wasn't it? All right, questions. <laughs> do you want to Ian you, says, you go first? Ian says, suffice to say, I don't share Stephen's view of Greg Hunt's abilities and record. Forgetting to order life-saving vaccines... Dubious dealings with Aspen Medical, ripping the guts out of Medicare, don't help his case. Given that Hunt was one of the very few people to, to party to Scott Morrison's secret power grab, surely he, Hunt, is not fit to ever hold a board position now. Geez, Ian, look, that is really quite tough. Um, I think Greg, Greg's been one of the few dignified people 
in this last two weeks where he hasn't come out and slammed his former Prime Minister. He hasn't leaked to the press. He's out of Parliament and he hasn't briefed people. He hasn't done what Josh did and told people he's livid. He hasn't provided commentary. He's just getting on with his life. Um, and look, he agreed to, to ScoMo coming in as the, as the Shadow Health Minister. Probably was the right call at the time with the panic uh, going on with, with COVID. No, it wasn't. And um, no, 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 no. And just, 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 just temporarily. I think health is the only one that was possibly justifiable. If Hunt had gone down with COVID himself, then Scomo needed to be able to make some quick calls. But the rest of them, obviously, Scomo was crazy and stupid. And but it just reminds me how big egos politicians have. I mean, the thing that people are most affronted about is you didn't tell me. You know, I'm. I'm the only treasurer, you know, I'm the only, you know, how dare you, I'm offended. Um, so, of course it's stupid, of course he deserves to be bagged, but there's no damage done and I'm, I'm a bit sick of the whole thing and I certainly don't think that Greg Hunt should be struck off as ever being a public company director just because uh, he didn't blow the whistle on ScoMo being his shadow health minister. Dale says, what's going on with Woolies? It appears to be trading at a PE ratio of above 40, whereas Coles is mid-20s. Is there something going on to justify such a high figure for a supermarket company? I can only assume the market is assuming a significant increase in profits. Well, we looked it up um, while we were sitting here and um, they've both announced their profits in the last two days, Woolies this morning, Coles yesterday. Um, Woolies PE on a trailing basis, of the profit that was just announced this morning is 28 times and Coles is 23 times. So it's not 40 versus mid-20s, but it's there is a premium for Woolies. Uh, its profit was $1.5 billion. Coles was $1 billion. Uh, Woolies' market cap is $43 billion versus Coles $23 billion. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I absolutely don't think Woolworths justifies the premium. No, because they haven't got the fast growth, you know, like they used to have the world's best liquor business and that could justify the, the and fast growing, that could justify the massive difference with Coles. But that's now been spun off into Endeavour Group, which is its own, has its own $13 billion market cap. I just think it is amazing to look back at it though. Woolies was floated at $2.45 a pop back in the early 1990s um, when John Spalvins's empire went broke. And um, it's now got a market cap of 45. If you throw in Endeavour at 13 billion plus Shopping Centres Australia, which they also spun off a few years ago, which is now worth 3 billion, that's a 60, that's a 60 billion combined um, total valuation. And what was the $46.25 a share, and the float price was $2.45. Right. So it's just been an absolute cash machine. And, and the key moment that I blame for this is the fall of Franklin's in 2003. The ACCC should never have allowed Coles and Woolies to snap up the best Franklin's stores. And that was the moment when Woolies shares went from seven bucks to 28 in about a year and a half because the viable third competitor fell over Typical week, ACCC allows the big to get big and powerful. And the, the Woolies story is a market power story. Um, and it is interesting they're, they're that over machine. the past, in recent years, everyone has been saying that Aldi and um, uh, Costco and all that are going to chew into the uh, market share of Woolies and Coles, but they haven't really done that. I mean, yeah, I mean, they've chewed into it a bit, but really yeah. they have not caused much damage. No, no. It still, it still is... a almost a functioning 
duopoly, yeah. I think I would say, in terms of national reach. And, and with real estate, it's very hard with, with property valuations and planning permits. It's very hard to roll out a competitor chain. I mean, Audi have done well to get as big as they have, but the, you know, the, it's not really a competitor in the sense that the, the, the supply choice is so limited. Yeah. So anyway, so Anna, Anna says... Anna says, yeah. I've a, I'm a 33-year-old chartered accountant uh, and with a health professional husband and two young kids. Well, what are you doing asking us questions, Anna, if you're a chartered accountant? Anyway, <laughs> last year I transitioned to using Morgans for our investment management, charging 3.2% fees and have some additional funds to invest for the long term, 10 years. I'm ha- I am, however, considering purchasing Vanguard externally to the Morgan's portfolio, 0.27% fees. Other than fee structure, what else would you consider when making this decision to go external to Morgan's? Well, Morgan's, uh, they have to earn another 3% over the market. That is a ridiculous fee, 3.2%. That's ridiculous. Every year. If they're really charging you that much, and I, I, don't think I you doubt need to, they would be. I don't think you need to go anywhere, go past the fee. That's, I would take enough. all of my money out of anyone charging 3.2%, regardless of, of performance. And uh, and just, you're right, uh, 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 ETFs or uh, LICs or put more money into your super fund. Sure. Or, yeah, so, God, 3.2%, Anna. I mean, you can, you can get not. really good fund managers... Uh, for one point five percent, you don't yeah. need to pay. You don't need to pay three percent no, to anyone. Exactly. So now John says, "I've never fully understood how bonds work. It's all very confusing to me. I understand that when you buy a bond, you get paid interest on it. My questions are: Who sets the interest rate? The bond creator, the bond market, or other unknowns? Does the bond resale price influence the interest rate, or vice versa? What other factors influence bond prices, and why? Hope that's not too many questions." Um. Well, the market sets the interest rate. What what the government does when they sell bonds is they they put a what's called a coupon rate on the bond, um, and then there's an auction, and people pay uh, above or below a hundred dollars because the the, yes. the face value of a bond is a hundred dollars. Mm. Um, but that's not people, the market value; it's the nominal face value. That's no, the face value of yeah. the bond, and it has a coupon, um, say five percent coupon. So if interest rates generally are uh, below 5%, then people will pay more f- than $100 for 5%, mm. um, 5% yield. And if um, interest rates generally are above 5%, then they'll pay less mm. than $100 for the 5%. Yeah, but so, just remember that the coupon is what you will eventually get back. That's the most important no, no, thing. You get the, you get sorry, paid. sorry, sorry the, the, the face value is what you will eventually get back. That's the loan you've given. Yeah, that's right. The so the, when the when the bond matures, say it's got a five-year term, hmm. at the end of the five years you get your money back. Yeah, I mean, at some levels, the issuer is no different from a from a car manufacturer or a property developer. They create the product and they offer it at a price, and then after that, the market sets the price for resale. It can be up and down, but I guess the difference is the car manufacturer won't then buy back the car at the same thirty thousand dollars face value they sent it for. That's so it's a fixed price debt security that can be traded on the market and some levels it's no different from a term deposit except the term deposit is not not tradable but you're you're lending money for three years at a fixed rate so now john says should super funds be required to invest a percentage of social affordable housing a percentage of their assets it seems that these members would benefit from being able to own their own home and for those entering the workforce now it could be beneficial the slightly lower return would not make a large difference this would require some imagination to structure, but it would solve some of the housing affordability issues we continue to have and will continue to have. What do you reckon, Alan? Um, I don't agree. I think that um, what needs to happen is that um, 
uh, housing needs to be made a proper, uh, decent um, uh, asset class for super funds to invest in, which it can and should be. I mean, I, it can't I, be, I, I read about this very subject mm. in the New Daily this morning mm. and pointed out that the long-term return from residential housing is the same as the stock market, 11% per annum mm. total return mm. since 1926. Mm. Um, and the difference is that um, the yield on, uh, the rental yield on residential housing is lower than the dividend yield on stocks. Mm. So the dividend yield on stocks is between 4 and 5%. Mm. Um, after costs, the dividend, the, year, the rental yield on residential housing is two to three percent, mm. but the difference is that the capital gain on housing is greater than shares. Yes, and so the, it ends up being a total return of the same, eleven percent. The trouble is that there isn't, uh, there aren't any vehicles for super funds to invest in housing. And you know why? Because they're not exempt from land tax. So the state government here in Victoria has lifted land tax revenues since Dan Andrews got elected from $1.7 billion in 2013-14 to a budgeted $4.8 billion this year. And residential property is exempt from that. But if you're a only super if you, fund... Well, only if you're living in it. If you're yeah, an investor, yeah, but if you're you an, pay land yeah, tax. Yeah, correct. So, so that's why corporates don't own large swathes of houses because the land tax bill is prohibitive. So if you wanted to get super funds or corporates into residential property, buy and hold, not just develop and sell, then because they're selling it to people who are land tax exempt, is you would need to um, fix that land tax, unfair tax on for-profit corporate entities. Fair enough. Keith says, considering the share market falls Magellan has suffered on the departure of co-founder and former high-profile stock picker Amish Douglas, how do you see the market response when Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger finally hand over the reins of Berkshire Hathaway. I don't own shares, but keen to understand your thoughts on the godlike status that these guys rightfully hold. I don't think the shares will fall much at all because Charlie Munger is now 98. <laughs> he's, not, he's the world's oldest worker, I think, um, followed by Queen Elizabeth, who's 96, still in the job, Warren Buffett, who's 92, and then Rupert Murdoch, who's 91. So they're the four most high-profile 90-somethings still working in high-profile public positions. The, th the reason why the stock won't fall is that Berkshire Hathaway is capitalised at $658 billion US dollars. That's almost a trillion dollars. And there are hard assets that back that up. So you and I could run that portfolio, Alan. We just would say, hold which is what uh, the great strength of Berkshire Hathaway has been. Yeah, but every now and again they buy something. Yeah, but they never pay a dividend. So it's just basically the benefit of compounding and long-term investments that have performed extremely well. The share price is $442,000 US dollars. So if you want, I can't even go to their AGM because I can't buy one share. For, it cost me 640000 Australian dollars to buy one share, Alan. So I... <laughs> So Warren's, he's, he's, it's unfair. He's picking on the on the poor people who can't even afford to buy one share. He should do a I mean, massive you buy share B split. Shares. You could buy B shares. Yeah. Which are I don't like the fact that he's running a gerrymander. So he owns 16.4% of the stock, but he's got 30.7% of the vote. So he's doing the... He's doing the he's Murdoch, doing Murdoch. Google, Murdoch. Facebook. So many of them do it. And he just doesn't need to do it because he's not going to get sacked, is he? Is someone going to come along and go, Warren, you've got 16% of the votes, mate. And we're now going to run a campaign and throw you out. I mean, it's just it's just paranoia that these people do this. Yeah. So it's fine. Um, so. Jesse, a female listener, says, how do you find out the 50-day moving average for a given stock? So have you looked that up? 
No, I don't know how to get that. Well, and if you Google it, you'll find that there's a few websites that'll give it to you. Okay. And is, is it the 50-day moving average closing price average or is it, is it a volume-weighted average price over 50 days? I'm guessing it's a VWAP. It's just... Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know, but you can... So I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a website called Barchart, which barchart.com, which gives me the moving average. There you go. Now, we have, we have one final very long question, which well, we won't gonna, read we, out. You're not going to read that out. No, we won't even name the female analyst who sent it through, but she was responding to the comment in our last catch-up, Alan, about the lack of female analysts on earnings conference calls. Yes. And even again this week, I listened to two or three, the likes of Transurban. Again, it's a total bloke's affair. And this female analyst has given a very detailed explanation of all the barriers and unfair treatment that she has faced battling all the blokes and the blokey system trying to be a female investment banking stockbroking analyst and I think it's a real issue because it's 95% male the analyst community and all those brokers out there need to actively be supporting and and developing female talent because it's one of the most obvious gaps in the diversity market I've seen at the moment so I think we should just say to all you blokey analysts out there and their bosses do something about this because, because one hour earnings conference calls are just blokes, blokes and more blokes and it's not good enough unlike the money cafe which is blokes, blokes and more blokes Alan <laughs> what are we going to do that about that? that is true, what are we going to do about that? we need to get a third road, third player who or occasional guest host. anyway, anyway it's in, our, it's in our to-do list. Any ideas will be gratefully received, everybody. But it's good we had a few female questions this week. So to all our female listeners out there, we want a majority of female questions next week. So send them in. Okay, well, that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of Money Cafe. Um, next week's James Thompson, another bloke. <laughs> um, so uh, send in your questions for him or me at, to the money cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And you are? Stephen Main, James Packers' new best friend. See you next week. See you next week.